Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is my opinion, and I'm going to seek my approval. Do I approve of me? Love doesn't have any expectations. It doesn't seek something in return. It gives because it wants to. At our core, all of us have these feelings of being unlovable and inadequate. And until we start to care for those parts of ourselves, we can't really have the outer successes that we long for. There's money by you, intuition, insight, creativity, higher vision, transcendence, no. Money does buy you pleasure, and pleasure is good, but it's not enough. We need fulfillment. Welcome to the Unwind Podcast, a show to help you pause, relax, reflect, and be curious. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best-selling author and entrepreneur exploring the human experience. I interview world-leading thinkers, shaping ideas around the mind, health, spirituality, philosophy, and culture. I'm often reminded that thoughts become things, so we need to choose the good ones. I hope this show helps you to do that too. On today's show, we are speaking to Jerry Hussey, who is also known as the Soul Coach. He is Ireland's leading health and performance psychologist and coach who is transforming thousands of people's lives with his tools, teachings, and courses. He's the author of Awaken Your Power Within and getting ready to release his second book, The Freedom Within. I've been following Jerry's work for a while now, so it is a complete delight to have him on the show. I'm excited to dive in. Would you mind sharing a quote or a piece of writing that resonates with you? I will. It's from uh, my book and it comes under a title that says, Consciousness does not exist in the brain and doesn't even exist in the body. If I was to have a strong, healthy and connected body, then I would need to change my mind from one of negativity, disconnection and self-heart to one of a strong, healthy thoughts, thoughts that could both heal and nourish my mind, my body and my soul. I need to let go of and release myself from the cycle of negative thinking. It was now blatantly clear, in order to heal my body, I would need to heal both my mind and my soul. Wow. And why did you choose that piece? The more I've gone from trying to heal my anxiety, understanding the nervous system, the good brain axis, the microbiome, the neurotransmitters of the brain, I'm absolutely certain more than ever that it is the mind that is controlling everything. So E equals MC squared, the energy, the frequency of the body is, is, has such an immediate impact on our physical health. And very often the state of our body or the health of, of our body is the health of our mind. So it was at that moment when I kind of realized that consciousness is not even in the brain. The brain is part of the body. The mind is not the brain. And once you begin to get that realization, once you begin to realize that the brain is not the mind, the mind is something bigger, stronger, 
and you realize that psychology is psychology, ology is the study of, and psyche is the human psyche, which is the soul. And you begin to realize that a wounded soul is a wounded body. I talked about anorexia of the soul. The body can only be as healthy as the soul. So everything is frequency, everything is energy, and, and, and matter follows that. What do you think are the main things that are making our souls unhealthy? Why are we soul sick? I think it's a couple of things. I think it's comparison. I think we're comparing ourselves not just to other people, but we're comparing ourselves to the person that we think we should be. Mm. We're comparing our life as it is to the life that we think we should have. So the Buddhists have this great definition of emptiness and absence. So absence is me and you open up a press in the kitchen and there's no food in there. But we didn't really expect there to be any food there. It's like, you know, we, we often do that at times. The level of disappointment is slight. But if you really, really believe there's going to be something amazing in there and you opened it up, you're still looking at an empty price. But now what you're experiencing is absence. Something is missing. Mm. So we live with this impression or illusion that our life should have happiness and children and romance and adventure and travel. And then when it doesn't have that, we think something is missing. So we feel that there's an emptiness and an absence in our life all the time. Something is missing. So we're comparing the life we have to the life we think we should have, even though the life we think we should have is just a figment of our imagination. And then I think deep down, we're suppressing our soul because we value social affirmation more than we do self-expression. So we tend to look like other people. We, we think and act and say things that will get us accepted. We're constantly suppressing our true self in order to become someone that can be loved because at some deeper level, we believe we're not enough. The amount of people I even say, you know, when you're going out at nighttime, people change their hair, their makeup. And the question I ask is, are you trying to look more like your real self or less like your real self? So I think your soul is your inner spark of light. It is your the thing that makes you you. It is the thing that makes you different. But nobody really wants to be different anymore. And everybody's trying to fit in. And everyone's trying to live according to a map and meet all these milestones. And we're suppressing, denying our souls. So what I'm saying is we put this mask on. And for the rest of our life, we're in behind that mask. And what that mask does is it creates a vision of somebody to the outer world, but it suppresses. We're stagnating, we're suppressing, we're suffocating our own real selves. So we're actually amputating our own souls and t constantly telling ourselves we're not enough. We're not good enough. No matter what we do, we're not good enough. And I think that's what's really driving all this fear and anxiety because what are we afraid of? I think the biggest fear that we all have is that we're simply not enough. We're not good enough. What do you think the first step on the journey is back to our own individual unique self-expression? Because I totally agree with you. I walked down the street last week and I was with a friend and I was having a laugh with her about the fact that we walked past five women that were wearing the exact same outfit I was. And I was kind of joking going, I am just as a conformist as all these other women. I'm wearing the same gym gear. I'm wearing the same cap, the same trainers. My hair is exactly the same. And I was kind of embarrassed laughing, but it did get me thinking, why are we all looking the same or even trying to look the same, me included? Is there a step back? Do you see a future where we can start to reclaim ourselves again? What will it take? I think it starts with the very basics. I think it starts at school because what happens is we all go to school. We're all totally different, unique kids. In that school, you have 
you know, you've kids that sit down, some are going to be astronauts, musicians, some mm. are going to be painters, some are going to be everything. And yet they're all told to sit down, stay quiet, read the same book, go to the same exam. We'll only measure one form of intelligence. And then you began to told that that's a good job. You know, that's a good career. But nobody says it's a good career for who? So for some people, being a surgeon is actually a great career and they love it. For other people, it's the worst job in the world. Some people love being a pilot. You try get me cooped up in a cockpit for six or seven hours a day, I would go absolutely bananas. So we're kind of told that that's objectively a good job or oh, she's done very well for herself. She's very high up in the corporate world. But does she like the corporate world? Does it make her happy? Mm. So I think what we need to do is realize that too much of our systems, be it a school and social media, is trying to sell you an objective form of reality. So if you live in this place and you wear these clothes and you have this car and you have 2.3 kids by the time you're 33, blah, 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 you're going to be very happy. But in fact, most of the people who tick all those boxes are desperately unhappy. Mm. But commercialism has to sell you the dream. They have to sell you something to push towards. They don't just tell you, be yourself, do what makes you happy, and happiness is the greatest of all possessions. How have you developed your own inner confidence to be able to build the life that you have, which is very individual? You work for yourself. And I'm not saying that everyone who works themselves has individual lives, because I think there's a lot of people that work for themselves that are still conforming in some way, shape or form. But it does appear to me that there is such a lack of confidence that so many people have, and I'm saying me included, that even if we do go out in the wild by ourselves to be a bit different, when something bad happens, we run really quickly back to the rhythm that we think will get us what we think it will give us. For me, all of this came very early in my, in my age. My, my second suicide attempt was when I was 14. So you get to a point in life where on the outside, I was this good student. I was a good athlete. I came up in a beautiful family, lived on a farm. And everything in my world on the outside said I should be happy, but I was desperately ha unhappy, desperately anxious, a terrible stammer. I couldn't speak, I had headaches all the time. And my body was sick, my mind was sick, and going from doctor to doctor to doctor. And it wasn't until, you know, after my, my, my parents searched every doctor gone to try fixing me, looking at blood tests and in the body and brain scans. And of course, they were all natural. Nobody mentioned panic attacks. Nobody mentioned anxiety. Nobody mentioned anything. They just kept looking in the body for the problem. And it wasn't until at 14 years old after, at the lowest point in my life, my mother had me in front of a doctor for a day and we did all these amazing tests. And of course, they were going to tell you I was healthy. And, and, and the doctor, as he kind of pushed my mother out, out the door to kind of, you know, your time's up, please leave. My mother says, but please, I've seen him. I've seen him when he's panicking. I've seen him when he can't sleep. I've seen him when he's, has, you know, tell me what it is. And this famous pediatrician that was meant to be all things to all said to my mother, if you want my honest opinion, he's making this up so he doesn't have to go to school. It was at that point, for about a little while afterwards, I began to say, I must be making it up. There's something wrong with me. I'm weak. Why can't it be like everybody else? Why am I bringing all this shame on my parents? Why am I the one draining the life out of my family? And now I felt this massive shame and guilt. And anybody that suffers from anxiety or depression, you know that part of it is, part of the pain is guilt because you're saying, I want to be happy. I wish I didn't feel like this. I wish I wasn't the misery of the house. 
but I can't change it. So I felt a while like that. And then I came home and I remember just thinking, well, hold on a second here. I'm not making this up. I do feel the way I feel. It has nothing to do with going to school. And for the first time in my life, when I was really backed into a corner, and there's a lovely expression that says, you never know how strong you are until strong is the only option. For the first time in my life, I said, I don't think he's right. I think I'm right. At 14 years old, I was now saying the pediatrician is wrong and I am right. That was the first time in my life I actually had a voice inside of me that wasn't saying you're wrong, you're weak, you're, you're not good enough, what the hell is wrong with you? Being forced into that, forced a voice inside me to say, you're not making this up. And just for a minute, just forget what he said because he doesn't know you. He never asked you any questions. He never spoke with you. How could he know? And at 14 years old, I began to realize the desperate lack in the current medical world. I suddenly realized they only look at the body. They only look at the physical. They don't understand what the mind is. So at 14 years old, I had to start asking myself, what do I really want in life? What am I really chasing? What is making me unhappy? I, I only knew this one thing. I can't live like this. And I made myself a promise that I was going to try for a week to fix it. If I felt a tiny bit better at the end of the week, I would, I'd go another week. So I started reading books. I started doing little things. I came across an, an amazing book on Deepak Chopra who, that changed my life and I started reading it. And suddenly he started telling me that the mind and the body are not the same and that the body responds to the mind and the mind is not the brain. And the mind is a connection of... So I started discovering things like the gut brain axis, cold water immersion, the power of breathing, the power of thoughts. So slowly I started retraining myself how to breathe, how to use diaphragmatic breathing. Rather than fast, shallow breathing, I started, I started doing cold water immersion. My dad was a farmer, so I filled a big tank out the back of our house that was meant for feeding cattle. And I used to jump in every morning, freezing cold in the west of Ireland in the middle of winter. And I said, like, God, this is making a big difference. So I started that. Then I discovered things like yoga, meditation, visualization. And now I began to realize that the neurons of the brain, we actually reshape the brain. Every time we think something, every time we say something, an electrical signal gets sent through the brain. It connects neurons together. It gets wrapped in myelin. And that's how we build a pattern. But all I ever said to myself was, I'm not good at this. Why am I so anxious? What the hell is wrong with you? Then I started listening to Louise Hay. And she said, I said, I'm a really powerful individual. I had a terrible speech impediment. I had a, a stammer. I couldn't speak. I started saying, I'm an incredible speaker. I'm an incredible communicator. And I started firing new neurons in the brain. And now, for moments of my day, instead of thinking of everything that was wrong with my life, I used to think of, well, what's good? I'm strong. I'm still here. I'm resilient. And the more we know now from science, when you start to fire those new neurons, you're actually building new brain pathways. When you start to build new, firing new neurons, you send a new message to your central nervous system. And now I wasn't completely immersed in thoughts of fear and anxiety. And I began to realize that my nervous system was switching away from the sympathetic nervous system, which is fight or flight, and it was switching into parasympathetic nervous system. So that's where I started. I started with trying to understand what is anxiety? What is the nervous system? And too many people today still don't know the difference between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. A lot of people today aren't fully aware that your brain and your gut are connected. And in fact, your, your gut has neurons of itself. So when I talk about the mind, I'm talking more about the gut than this thing up here. 
five times more information comes from the gut to the brain than down the other ways. And now we're beginning to realize that most illnesses began as a gut imbalance. Anxiety and depression are as much to do with a disturbance of the microbiome and a gut imbalance than anything to do with the brain. So why was the pediatrician giving me a brain scan? Why wasn't they asking me about my diet, my exercise? Mm. Why wasn't they talking about cold water immersion? And the more I tried that after about six months, so I'm still only 15 years old, but now I'm reading books on brain chemistry. And this was a kid that was useless in school. I'm reading books on brain chemistry, the central nervous system. And I was like, how come no GPs ever mentioned this to me? So the more I began to understand how the system works and how we can switch it on or we can switch it off, is the more I began to put in place all the daily practices that I still practice. I call them my code, C-O-D-E, calendar of daily events. So I began to realize that happiness and confidence and freedom aren't things that you're born with. They're things that you develop. It's like physical strength. You develop them. I then began to realize I have the power to build a powerful mind. I have the power and the techniques to build a calm, balanced central nervous system. I have the ability to change the shape and function of my cells, my genes, and my biology through thought and thought alone. By the time I was 16 or 17, I was trying to tell people this in school. and My teacher said, no, I think you're wrong. My local GP used to say, Epigen- I, I, I first heard about epigenetics when I was 17 and how the frequency in which the gene exists is more important than the gene itself and that your health destiny has little to do with genetics. It has more to do with the lifestyle in which the gene exists. In Ireland now, we have lots of doctors tweeting and and sharing great new research on epigenetics. I'm like, hold on a second here. I read that in Deepak's book 30 years ago, and Bruce Lipton, and these guys that you said were quacks and lunatics were just 30 years ahead of you. So I suppose it's a long-winded answer, but it's multidimensional. It hasn't been a quick fix. It's no one thing, but it starts by really taking time to understand what is the brain, what is the central nervous system, what is the gut, and how our breath, how the words we use, how things like exercise, connection with nature, cold water immersion, have a massive impact on the electrical and chemical signals. And when you can control the electrical and chemical signals, then you control how you feel. And that's the greatest power of all time. So of course I'm sad at times, but every time I'm sad, I can just switch it off. We can switch on and off emotions when we have the right techniques, but it all starts with gaining an understanding as to what exactly we are inside underneath the skin. Well, thank you for that brilliant answer. Firstly, I completely agree with you and it's a really interesting way to look at how does one have the confidence to you know, be in their full self-expression and that is a complete reflection of how strong someone feels in their own mind. Because often when we're feeling a bit unconfident, when we're feeling vulnerable, that's when we will will run back to the pack, we'll run to conform, we'll run to look like others purely just in the hope that if other people look like they've got it right and are happy, then maybe if I do what they're doing, I will be too. So I love that I- idea that actually educating ourselves about our mind is the first step in being able to build that confidence to truly be in our own unique self-expression. And secondly, I just appreciate your nuanced answer in firstly saying that you still get sad because I think 
the problem I'm seeing when I look at this mental health world is we're almost projecting perfection on the mental health world. It's assuming that suddenly we do some techniques and we're never going to feel unhappy again or we're never going to feel anxious again. And then we immediately think this content doesn't work because we've suddenly felt anxious. And as you just said, I mean, you've changed millions of lives and yet you could still say you get sad, but that's not the problem. No, I, I think for me, I've always said this, and I have two young kids, and uh, you know, I, I've said this before. We have a playroom, and in the playroom, lots of little toys, and I had my little lad in there, and he was going absolutely bananas. And at the end of a long day, and you're just about to pull your hair out, and he leaves the playroom. And when I get my chance, I remember I, I was in anger. I just kicked whatever was near it, and what was near to me was a Peppa Pig bus. So people might know what Peppa Pig is if you have kids. I could see this Peppa Pig bus going up in the air and all Susie Sheep, Rebecca Rabbit falling out of it. <laughs> and in the split second I did, I started to laugh at myself because I said, oh, Jerry, the enlightened one. How enlightened are you now? Poor Peppa Pig. You didn't <laughs> There's no such thing as a negative emotion. We need to get rid of that nonsense. Every emotion is a piece of information. Anger, judgment, impatience, kindness, gratitude, love. They're a message from the body that something is out of balance. The only negative emotion is the ones that we suppress or deny. I shouldn't feel guilty. I shouldn't feel angry. I shouldn't, and we suppress it. What I do is I work off thing called emotional refractory phase. So once the anger bubbles up, the question is, how far do I allow it to distract me from happiness and performance? How long do I choose to stay angry, and how quickly can I rebuild it? So, and any given day, I go through anger, and but I would only stay in anger for sometimes less than a minute. So I have that level of awareness that I know what's the emotion that's driving me right now. What's the story in my brain connected with that? Yes. Is that a best version of me? And if not, change the bloody thing. So as Peppa Pig and Susie Sheep, Rebecca Rabbit said, <laughs> I caught them and I was like, but like, it's so easy at times to get angry and stay angry for the day. And then you stay angry for a week. And what happens then, it, it, it becomes your mood. And then if you stay long enough, that becomes your personality. So why is Jerry so angry? He's just an angry person. And I'm probably angry because something happened to me 20 years ago. And I'm carrying that anger around. And it's killing me. So for me, you got to give yourself permission to be how you are at any given moment. You can't outlaw any emotion. Every emotion is useful because it's giving you feedback. What's taking me out of balance? Where's my mind? What am I thinking about? And is it healing or hurting me? Because when you hold anger, when you hold judgment, when you hold impatience, even if I'm angry at you, it's me that's holding the anger. You don't care whether I'm angry or not. So I think I'm going to get her back by being angry at her. You don't give her monkeys. So... Every emotion you experience, you're the one choosing to hold. And what I always say to people, nobody can generate or perpetuate a thought or an emotion in you, only you. So if you were still feeling angry an hour after the event happened, then it's you that's perpetuating. And we know from science that emotions actually diminish very quickly. And what it needs is it needs another little kick. I call it like tip the wheel. So Imagine a little wheel come down the hill and every now and again it's about to slow down. You have to tip it to keep it going. Emotions subside very fast. But what happens is when you're angry, then you start to think of something else or something else until you have the awareness and not stop. 
So you change your biology, you change your chemistry, or sometimes I just go downstairs, I have a little gym in the house, and I hit a punch bag for 10 minutes. I just get it out. Or I just go out and do something else. So feeling the emotion is perfectly normal. It means you're alive. It means you're a human. It means you're not dead, which is a good thing. But the choice you have is how long do I stay in the emotion? And how quickly do I recognize this emotion is not helpful? It's only hurting me and have a way out of it. Something you said there, which I think is really powerful, is the narrative that we are playing in our heads is the thing that often is what is keeping the emotion there. Why do you think we hold on to narratives that we know rationally are not creating a good emotional environment within? And yet, for whatever reason, we are just stuck in the narrative. How do we let go? Um, why do we struggle to let go? Firstly, the chemicals of stress are, are addictive. Cortisol and adrenaline are addictive. So the problem with us is when we start to live in a prolonged, then we become addicted to it. So you wake up in the morning and suddenly there's no cortisol, there's no adrenaline. You start to panic a bit. You go into a WhatsApp group. You go into Sky News. You start looking for bad news. You start thinking. So sometimes people have to recognize we can actually get addicted to the chemicals of stress. So we actually go looking for stressful situations to give us the hit. So you got to break the chemical addiction to the hormones of stress. That's the first thing. And then secondly, when you're wounded, it's a bit like, have you ever walked into a room or walked in somewhere and you banged your shin off a table? It hurts. But yet your immediate reaction is to kick it back, which is more pain. So... What we have to do is choose peace, choose to walk away, choose to forgive. But the ego, which is our angry self, the ego always wants to fight back. It's committed to defending, to fighting. So it wants to fight. But you can fight, you can fly, you can freeze, or you can flow. So when we're hit with adversity or a challenging situation, fight, flight, or freeze is actually the one response. That's the sympathetic state. That's the limbic brain, that's the chimp taking over, and that's you just fighting back. But over here is the flow state. So athletes, even in the most adverse environment, find flow. It is easy to be angry. It is easy to be in that state. But you got to have strong techniques to take you out of it. And that's why we stay in it, because it's easy. It's easy to be angry. It's easy not to forgive. It's mm-hmm. easy to dig up an old trauma to explain why you feel the way we feel. And then the last part is it becomes predictable. And what the subconscious mind is, I need you to be predictable, Poppy. So Poppy, you're angry. So just once you're angry, then I know who you are. You have all this trauma from the past. So as long as you keep thinking about that. So the subconscious mind doesn't want you to be better. It doesn't want you to grow. It just wants you to be predictable. Please be the same person that you were last. So it tricks you. It is constantly telling you, please don't change. Please don't change. Because there's a great story where I once heard about uh, the queen went to visit a farmer. And the place was upside down. And there was mayhem everywhere. And eventually, she just realized this farmer's living in mayhem. I'm going to try to help him out. So she said, you know, if you don't mind, I'd like to make some changes around here. And he said, changes? Can't you see things are bad enough? I have enough to do. So... When we're stuck in a state of chaos, it's very hard to make a change, even though the change might be better. So sometimes when you say to your subconscious mind, I want to change, I'm going to take up yoga. It says, no, but I I don't like yoga. 
I want you to go to this conference. Uh, that's just a fraud, that stuff. I'd like to do exercise, but how about your bad knees? I'd like to do meditation. Uh, that doesn't really work. So you have this voice. <laughs> and the main purpose behind all of those narratives is please don't change. I need you to be predictable. I need you to be consistent with my belief about who you are. And until you actually change your deepest belief about who you are, you'll never change your habits. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. You wrote something which I thought was really interesting because I think all of us are guilty of self-sabotaging at times, but you write that self-sabotage is actually self-protection. Can you explain that? Yeah, self-sabotage is your best friend. It goes back to your belief. The only two things you really should ask in the world is what is my belief about myself and what is the belief about the universe? I always say a building cannot be bigger than its foundations. So if a building is built outside of its foundations, it's going to fall down. And your life cannot be bigger or better than your deepest belief about yourself. So self-tabotage is where you say, I'm going to set up a, a billion-dollar company. And then your, your mindset, your belief says, but I don't think you can. What if it failed? And if it failed, everyone would be laughing at you. And you wouldn't be able to tolerate that. You'd be really upset. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Don't do it. So it's not telling you don't do it because it doesn't want you to be successful. It's telling you don't do it because if you do it, it won't work out, and I want to save you the disappointment. It's like a parent that doesn't believe in you. I say, I want to be a doctor, I want to be a surgeon, I want to be an astronaut, I want to be a professional soccer player. And they, mm, maybe if you get a job down in the local shop. They're not saying that because they don't like you. They're saying that because they don't like you to suffer the disappointment. They don't want to set yourself up for failure. But the problem with that is, we often live within the limits of our own beliefs, but we often live within the limits of the beliefs of other people. So somewhere a teacher or a parent have said something and they've set a limit and we go on and become exactly that limit. So for me, self-sabotage is about keeping you in the predictable, the predictable past, the predictable expectation. And every time you choose or every time you begin to think about something that's outside that, you're like, it's like, not going to work out. It will fail. You'll be devastated. I can't deal with you being devastated. So let's not do it. I guess then this then links into why you encourage people to visualize. But also, I think that visualization can be tricky because when you visualize, often we can move into this idea of this perfect life that we want to create. And that has benefits. But then are we also not becoming far too attached to what we're visualizing and then bring more disappointment 
or frustration when reality then doesn't unfold in the way that we visualized? I think, firstly, the science behind visualization is we know from the neurons of the brain. So in the brain, we have a thing called a reticular activating system. And if you think of, you know, you go to a search engine, I don't, maybe I'm not allowed to say Google or whoever your preferred search engine is, and you used to type in, you want to buy a red car for £20,000. So you type that in a couple of times. Next thing you're on Instagram and an ad comes in and it's like, wow, it's an ad for a car for £20,000 as a red car. And then you're on all these different sites and suddenly every time you go on social media, you're getting an ad for the same thing. So we know how algorithms work. Every time you express an interest in something, every time you click, like, share, it recognizes what you're interested in. It brings more of that into your feed and the stuff you're not clicking gets diminished off your feed. So that's how algorithms work. But where do we think that came from? That idea came from the human brain and a part of the brain called the reticular activating system. We can't be consciously aware of everything that might happen of all times. So the brain is only allowing you to be aware of probably 50 to 60% of the consciousness that's happening, of all the possibilities. So you become consciously blind to most of the stuff that's happening. Your brain is literally deleting it before it reaches the level of consciousness. So the question then is, well, what the hell is it deleting? What if it's deleting all the good stuff? What if it's deleting the person you want to fall in love with, the job advert that you, you desperately want, the business opportunity? You're like, well, it could be. So instead of asking, what is it deleting? What you need to ask is, well, what does it keep? It keeps the stuff you're thinking about. It keeps the stuff you're thinking about, speaking about, listening to. Because just like on the algorithm of social media, if you're thinking about it and speaking about it, that's the stuff you're interested in. So what we think about, what we speak about, becomes the stuff that fills our world. And everything else is deleted from our feed, even though it's there. So I knew that wouldn't work out. I knew there'd be no car space. I knew I wouldn't get the job. Well, did you? Or did you manufacture it? So a very simple task, I, I, I often do events and for 10 or 15 minutes, I'll put on, you know, maybe pictures of blue cars and I'll do a, some fake information about, you know, how the sale of blue cars have gone up. And then everyone goes out for lunch. Then when they come back in after lunch, they've all been out in the city for an hour and a half and they come back in. I said, what did you notice? And they were like, you're right. Sales of blue cars must have gone through the roof because we could see blue cars everywhere. And I'm like, okay, but did you see them this morning? No. Do you think sales of blue cars went up that fast in two hours? You just made them consciously aware. So visualization is a very powerful scientific technique that not just fires neurons and builds new pathways in the brain, but it primes your reticular activating system. And in psychology, we call it pattern matching. Once you form an unconscious picture, then the conscious mind can only go into the world and find the cues that match that picture. It will not find cues that doesn't match the picture. So that's me the power of visualization. Now, when I visualize or when I set a goal, I do three things to answer your question then about what if it doesn't work? I would pick a goal. So for me, it might be that I want to live abroad half the year. I want to write a book, whatever it is. Mm. Then beside each of the outcomes, I put five process steps. So if I want to write a book, what do I got to do every day? So I really begin to see myself. So I need a space. I need a space out of the house away from the kids. I need to get there for at least three hours every day. If I want to 
lose weight, if I want to become healthier. So whatever the outcome goal is, I put five process steps beside it. And I see myself doing those every day. And then I, every day I answer, am I doing them? So if you want to be richer, you can't just sit around waiting to win the lotto or at the very <laughs> least go buy a lotto ticket. So whatever the outcome is, there's work that has to be done. So now instead of focusing on the outcome, I begin to focus on the process. But the most important thing is you have to believe in the process. Too many people say, right, I, I, I'm going to buy a blue car, but if I see a good red one for a good price, I'll buy that. That's not good. You have to have an intent. You have to have an, an emotional connection to it. The greatest reason why plan A never works is the presence of a plan B. There can't be a plan B. It's like I'm buying a blue car and that's it. How I buy a blue car is totally up for grabs. But I'm not buying a red car. I'm buying a blue car. So you set your intention and you visualize it as if it's already happened. And you begin to feel the gratitude and the excitement of what it was like to own that, to have your own business, to write the book. And you become so emotionally committed and excited by it, you begin to live in a place of gratitude and abundance. So now all your emotions are connected to it. So now you can't live without it. I'm not going to accept anything else. And then the last question I ask myself is, when I think of all the things that I dream of, who would be the person? What type of person would have those things? What, what would they be? They'd have to be confident. They would have to be fearless. They would have to be disciplined. They would have to be able to express themselves fully. So I make a list of what is the type of person. And then I say they would probably be a good person, be nice to be around. They would say please and thank you all the time. So now I'm looking at the right person with the right process. And the right person with the right process never worries about the outcome. So when I visualize, I visualize the outcome. I visualize the things I need to do to achieve the outcome. But I put a lot of time about, am I the person that would have those things? And when you really begin to focus on becoming the right person with the right mindset, doing the right things in the right way at the right time, the outcome nearly becomes inevitable. Interesting. So sometimes we can't obviously control the timing. So let's say, let's go with the blue car, red car example. You really want the blue car. And you feel like you've been looking for the blue car for the last year. You've been in your eyes doing the processes, trying as hard as you can. And for whatever reason, you still have not found the blue car. And now this puts you into a bit of kind of psychological distress because you're like, I've heard Jerry talk. I don't want to settle. I don't want the red car because I really have my mind on the blue car. What do you do then? You trust. So the first question is, what do you believe about yourself, remember? And secondly, what do I believe about the universe? divine timing I've always stepped into something where I probably needed 20 steps but I could only see one and I've taken worse time worse time worse time at times I've often said I'm going to achieve something in a year it's taken me three years but I, it didn't stress me out I was 25 before I bought my first car me and my wife only bought our first house last year I was 45 when I had my second child a lot of people some people say jeez Jerry you've manifested the most amazing life and I did, but probably 20 years after everybody else. But I was never in any hurry because the first 10 years of my career were not about making money. It was about learning and understanding. I wasn't rushing to have children because I had to meet the right lady first. And the universe has to bring that person into my life. I can only turn up as my best self. When we rush, we start to doubt. And the moment you start to doubt the universe, you begin to think, I better do it by myself. So actually, I just I'll marry this person. But you can't. You have to ask yourself, do I believe in the universe or do I not? Mm. Because you were only 50%. We are co-creators. Of course we can. 
but we're not 100%. So the universe will present you with the right thing at the right time. Now, the frustration part is that we can't control everything. The human ego wants us to believe that the earth is at the center of the universe. Wrong. Human beings are the most enlightened of the species. We're actually the newest to the game. We're the only ones that bomb the hell out of each other. We're the only ones that starve each other. We're not enlightened. So get rid of that story. So now you begin to realize we don't control the world. We're actually at the mercy of the universe. We're not self-created. And people say, but this great freedom we have. Well, what freedom do we? You have to breathe oxygen. You can only live on the planet. You have to drink water. So what freedom do you have? Now, where you live on the planet, well, you have a bit of freedom there. So this idea we we have ultimate freedom, we don't. It's an illusion. So we live in this illusion that humans control their work and that we can control science. We control nothing. We're only now discovering supernovas and black holes that have existed for millions of years. We're only now discovering epigenetics. The science is millions of years behind the creation. So whoever created it is a million years ahead of us. So what we need is patience and humility. Mm. I will do my part. I will become the right person with the right mindset, doing the right things, and I will trust the universe. So of all the things I've done, I've ended up with an amazing wife because I waited. I live in my dream house because I waited. Mm. But all my friends were worried about property pricing. You have to get on the ladder and the mortgage rates. And I was like, I'm not rushing into a house I don't like mm. just because I can afford it. I'd rather wait. And everyone's saying, you know, rent is bad. All these stories, rent is dead money. Rent gives me freedom to live where I want, when I want, and the minute I don't want it, I can move. So there was times in my career where renting was actually the perfect thing because I was traveling the world all the time. But the narrative was, geez, Jerry, you're nearly 30. You need to buy a house. Interest rates are at an all-time low. You have to get a mortgage now. That wasn't in line with my thinking. So it is humility, and that's the hard part. I want it, and I want it now. Or I want it, and I want it when I say I need it. But the great things in life, the greatest gifts of the universe require us to be more patient and more accepting that we as human beings, as amazing as we are, we control nothing in the great scheme of things. We are at the mercy of the universe. And if you think you can control everything, you're like somebody standing on a beach when the tide is coming in with a stick trying to hit the tide back out again. So for me, it's I will do my part and the rest I hand over to the universe. Everything is happening exactly as it should, whether it appears like that or not, or whether it feels like that or not. I trust in myself and I trust the universe. And that's the greatest challenge to overcome the human ego, the need to control, the need to predict, the need to be in charge and surrender with vulnerability. I will do my part and I will let the universe do the rest. Have you had any moments where, I mean, you look at your life now and that is evidence for the universe at work, but has there ever been a moment where you've truly had this quite overwhelming showing of the universe if you get what i mean showing good and bad um so the universe regularly shows me that i'm not in control so i've had people that i love reject me because my message didn't suit them i've had family reject me because my message challenged their way of thinking 
So the universe has allowed me to experience rejection and challenge me to know that as long as I'm not rejected by myself, that's okay. The universe has made the first 15 years of my life hell because it knew that there was a gift that it was given me. Mm. It knew that it would actually begin to lead to the rest of my life. When I took up sport, I wanted to be a boxer. I wanted to be an Olympic boxer, and I failed over and over and over again. And just when I was almost close to it, I failed again. And I used to say, why are you doing this to me, universe? And I probably retired as a boxer thinking I was the ultimate failure and that why do I waste all my time? But the stuff I learned in boxing allowed me to work with an Olympic team, and that Olympic team became very successful. That I worked with more teams and more teams, and then from that, I owe everything to the sport of boxing, everything. I've made my entire life because of boxing and working with boxers. I owe everything to boxing, so how was it a failure? When I was 25 when I retired, after multiple losses and multiple disappointments, and I often remember being in the dressing room afterwards, crying in tears of frustration. This is never going to work out. Why are you doing this to me? So I've had multiple times where the universe has kicked the daylights out of me. But there's a question I always ask. And the question is not, why is this happening to me? The question I ask is, why is this happening for me? What am I meant to be learning here? What am I meant to be overcoming? And then on the other side, the universe has shown me that becoming the right person and doing the right thing doesn't guarantee you success, but it brings you to a place of happiness. So I live my life now with total freedom. Total freedom as in, I'm not afraid of tomorrow. I trust myself. I back the universe. I will try, and the pursuit alone makes me happy. So will this second book be the success the first book was? I don't know. But I've put my heart and soul into it, and the process alone has been worthwhile. So what I do with the universe is, by trusting in the universe, it has taken all fear out of my life. I don't even attach to this life. I'm ready to live. I'm ready to die. It doesn't matter. What matters is I'm here at this moment. And as long as I'm here in this moment, I will be the best that I can be, and whatever happens after that is nothing to do with me. What people think of me has nothing to do with me. What people say about me, nothing to do with me. How I'm remembered, nothing to do with me. I get to live this one short, beautiful life on my terms. I got to give myself a shot at it. That's all I ask. Give yourself a shot. It's a short, beautiful life. It is not a dress rehearsal. You get one crack at it. And the more I've turned up like that is the more the universe has just opened up in front of me. Things that I've dreamed about have happened. Things that I've wrote down on pieces of paper. My life is somehow a a sketch of my imagination. But I don't overly think about it. And when I go in the pursuit of something, I don't really care whether it works out or not. Because I know the pursuit alone is going to make me a better person. And whether the universe hands me abundance or take something away from me. It doesn't matter because the universe is the same lesson I'm meant to be taught. So the outcome is the outcome. But right person, right process. So what the universe has done is it has shown me that when things are bad, just breathe, be patient, be humble. It will pass. And when things are really good, be kind, be patient, be humble, and know that it will pass. And when you live by those rules with the universe, you don't get attached to the negatives and you don't get attached to the positives. It's like it's an unfolding movie. It's like I'm in my movie and I'm observing it. It's like going to the cinema, but you're not just watching the movie. You get to be the main actor. And it's like, that's how I feel my life is. It's like it's a big game. 
it's a big challenge to see, am I brave? Am I courageous? Am I a kind person? Do I back myself? And if you do, then enjoy the movie because it's not going to last either way. Uh, Jerry, I just could listen to you all day. And thankfully, you have nine hours of Jerry talking. Well, I had nine hours of Jerry talking during his last book because I audio booked it. But can you tell us about the new book? Because I know that you can pre-order. What can we expect to find in the new book? Yeah, so the first book, Awaken Your Power Within, was all around what we spoke about, understanding the brain, the mind-body connection, what are thoughts, what are emotions, and getting to a place of really healthy, healthy body, healthy mind, getting to a place of confidence and going after your life. The next book then is more about, okay, how do you make peace with the uncertainty of the world, the mm -hmm. unpredictability? How do you make peace with the fact you're going to die, the fact that you're going to have to say goodbye to everybody and everybody you love? How do we understand that some people in the world are born with children who die when they're two or three years old? So what I didn't want is that people thinking that I somehow say, well, if you think you're right, the world becomes this very happy place. The world is full of pain and the world is full of uncertainty and unpredictability. And people are put into life situations that we simply can't understand. Mm. But even in that world, so that's the rules of the world. It is unpredictable. It is uncertain. You will never make sense of it all. People will not always love you. People will reject you. And your success will not always make people happy. So that's the rules of the universe. Now, within that then is, how do I give myself emotional freedom to accept that's the game? That's the game. That's where I am. So it's all around things like non-attachment, non-judgment, non non-comparison, forgiveness. And it looks at things like overcoming family dynamics. How do I not be the person my family need me to be? How do I step into my own skin? How do I stop saying, well, my mother should do this because she's my mother? My dad should be better because how do I just let that go? How do I strip away all the labels and all the expectations and realize that this is a very unpredictable world where anything can happen at any given moment, where things happen that I simply can't understand? But in all of this, I get to observe it. I get to witness it. So it's about awakening the observer self, getting out of fight or flight mode, getting out of victim mode, getting out of poor me mode. And you begin to awaken this whole sense of awareness and consciousness called the observer. And we begin to live like Viktor Frankl, who was a concentration camp victim, or any of these incredible people, Nelson Mandela, who said, I had this incredible pain inflicted on me, but I didn't suffer. Even in that, I released my mind. So this book is about taking the suffering out of life. You do not need to suffer. You do not need the perfect life. You don't need to live in the perfect house. You don't need to have a perfect job. You don't need to have life as you think it should be in order to be blissfully happy. And then we look at what is happiness. Happiness is just a temporary emotion like everything else. So please don't chase happiness, chase peace. And when you really cultivate a sense of peace, then even when things are going wrong in your life, you can actually be at peace because you know it's not going to last. It's just a game. So it moves nicely on from awaken your power within. And we look at this kind of philosophical, scientific look at consciousness and awareness, awaking the observer self and realizing that nothing lasts and we talk a lot about taking your, your awareness and attention from your place of power and your place of pain. 
So a lot of people are always thinking about the pain in their life. And the more you think about your pain is the more painful it becomes. Mm. What these great things like Maldela and Viktor Frankl did was they said, yes, there's pain in my life, but there's also a power and I'm going to shift my awareness to my place of power, my abundance, my gratitude. So it's a book about emotional freedom. It is a book that fully acknowledges the hurt, the despair, the unpredictability and the uncertainty of the world. Life is not always fair. So what the book is about, is about to say is, life does not get easier. Your challenges do not get easier, but you can get stronger. And when you get stronger, something amazing. So stop waiting for the world to become easier. It won't. You go get stronger and see what happens then. Gosh, I'm obsessed already. We will put a link to that book in the show notes along with Jerry's first book. And I will also put a link to your social channels. But is that the best place for people to find you? Or where would you suggest? The best place to find my Instagram at Jerry Hussey. You can share that if you want. We do have a website called soulspace.ie. Myself and my wife put everything on my Instagram. It's there. There's a link tree and we do shows, events, retreats, and everything is always on the link tree in my Instagram page. Thank you so much, Jerry, for your time today. You talk as if you're playing the piano. It's so musical and it's like a meditation listening. And so once again, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for taking interest in me and having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed today, please hit subscribe and leave a comment because this helps the podcast so much. I'd be endlessly grateful if you wouldn't mind doing so. My mental health book, Happy Not Perfect, is available to order now. The book teaches you how to be a flexible thinker, a skill that helps you navigate any challenge that might come your way, helps you manage emotions and helps you thrive to be the bendiest version of yourself. Until next time, I love hearing from you. So do shoot me a message on Instagram. Send me a DM with any of your thoughts. Stay safe and well. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>